0: I'm the Gypsy and you're not and this is the Rubber Biscuit Road Show presented by Artist Alley Studio featuring the artisan handcrafted and branded creations of the Gypsy and Mad Hatter at www.artistalleystudio.com and now on with the show. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow. I'm your host, The Gypsy. If you tuned in last week, you discovered that we started our presentation of my novel, Never Say Never, An Epic Journey, Volume 1. You met my grandparents, Oscar and Pearl Hummel. You met my Uncle Carl, and you also met my mother, Shirley Elizabeth Hummel, whom this story is about. You also began my journey with me as I headed from Texas up to Kansas to lay my mother's ashes to rest between her mother and her father in Rochester Cemetery in Topeka, Kansas. So now we continue on with Chapter 2 of Never Say Never, An Epic Journey, Volume 1. It is going to be a bumpy night. There is something about South Central Oklahoma. It does not like me or my motorcycles and I do not like it. I have never gone through that area that I did not lose something off my motorcycle and today would be no exception. As I pass my least favorite sign in the world, Oklahoma Turnpike Maintenance Begins, I gritted my teeth because I knew of the bone-jarring ride that was ahead of me. Logic would dictate that with the large amount of money the Oklahoma Turnpike Association takes in every year in tolls, that the Oklahoma Turnpike would be the finest, most pristine road on the planet Earth. But the opposite is true. The Oklahoma Turnpike is the bumpiest, most ill-repaired toll road in the entire United States. In Oklahoma, the roads that are not toll roads and funded with federal monies are in a lot better state of repair than Oklahoma's pay-as-you-go roads. And the reason can be summed up in one word, corruption. The finest example of this corruption can be found in what happened a few years ago. The turnpike between the Oklahoma-Missouri state line and Oklahoma City was one year from being paid off, and there would be no more toll road cutting the state in half. The people of Oklahoma were joyous with the prospect of federal funds finally being used to maintain the road. They were also grateful that they would no longer have to put out their hard-earned money for nothing. They counted the days down to the demise of the turnpike and waited in anxious anticipation of the removal of the hated boots. It was at this time that the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority decided that the turnpike needed new tow plazas. The multi-million dollar project would ensure that Oklahoma would still have a cash flow coming in from that stretch of highway for years to come. To add insult to injury, the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority raised the fees to travel the road by 20% claiming expenses to pay for the improvements. As my eyeballs bounced and my teeth rattled, I prayed that the Chickasha, Oklahoma exit would come quickly. It was my next fuel stop and I desperately needed a break to let my body stop vibrating. Just as we passed my favorite sign in Oklahoma, Oklahoma Turnpike Maintenance ends. I heard a clunking sound. Quickly surveying the road around me and in my rearview mirror, I did not see any wayward motorcycle parts that had left my bike. I geared down and took the Chickasha exit. There are two exits into Chickasha, and I chose this exit for a reason. Shortly before leaving Yula, I had lost one of the pins that held my watch to the band. There was a Walmart right off of this exit, so I figured to kill two birds with one stone fuel the bike, and repair the watch. As I pulled up to the pump at the Murphy gas station, the part that South Central Oklahoma had decreed would fall off my bike, fell off my bike. I heard the metallic clunk sound as my air breather hit the ground. I sat on the bike looking at it, just lying there on the asphalt, as if I was expecting an explanation from it for its treasonous act. Help me! I've fallen and I can't get up! But alas, neither such plea nor explanation was coming from the wayward piece of chrome. I dismounted Black Betty and examined the breather. I determined that at some point in the past, someone had taken it off the bike, and for whatever reason, they had failed to replace the four washers behind the four screws when they reinstalled it. The vibration that the motorcycle and I had just suffered was enough to rip the screws through the now enlarged holes. I did not have to think about what I would do to fix this problem. For me, it was self-evident, as all such problems have always been. There is an old expression, that's a no-brainer. And for me and generations of my family, that seems to have been our motto. The Hummel family history has been traced back to 1543 and includes craftsmen, politicians, deacons, and artists. One such artist is a third cousin of mine named Sister Maria Nacia Hummel. She was a Catholic nun who became quite famous for her paintings. Most people do not know her by that name. They know her by her other name. Berta Hummel. It is Berta's paintings of German children at play that was the inspiration for the porcelain Hummel figurines. There seems to be a genetic trait that runs through the Hummel bloodline, wherein they are problem solvers. I had this trait and so did my mother. Shirley was capable of putting together working objects from items that would appear to be junk to some people. A good example of this skill was toy and bicycle assembly. While my mother was manager of the toy department at Department Store, I witnessed her on more than one occasion putting together, very quickly, toys and bikes, using no instructions whatsoever. I can even see instances of the same skill in my great-grandfather, Walter Hummel, who was the first tack and livery store proprietor in Topeka, Kansas. I'm sure his skill in problem-solving came in mighty handy as he made and fashioned mule harnesses and yokes for his biggest client, the U.S. Cavalry. I threw the air breather into the saddlebag of the bike and finished fueling. The Walmart was just down the hill, so I idled the big motorcycle down the hill and pulled it up next to the building in the shade. I went in and purchased the necessary washers and returned my bike. Pulling my tool bag out of one of the saddlebags, I went to work. It was not long before I had all the necessary repairs done and was ready to roll again. I looked at my watch and noticed it was almost noon and I knew my wife Debbie would be going to lunch soon. I decided to take a break so I could call her on her lunch break and let her know how much I was already missing her on this trip. After talking with her for about 15 minutes, I once more returned to the turnpike. The temperature was in the high 90s, and the wind against my face felt like a blast furnace. As I headed north through Oklahoma City and onwards towards the Kansas border, my mind wandered back to my great-grandfather. I wondered what had caused him to come to Kansas. I knew what had brought his father from the small German village to Inigen, to America, but why did my great-grandfather come to Kansas? Walter Lennox Hummel was the son of John George Hummel, Jr. and Harriet Bivens Davis. He had landed into life on October eighteen 1850 in Shiloh-Cumberland County, New Jersey. In 1875, Walter fell in love with a beautiful local girl. Walter was attracted to her clear hazel eyes and refined manners. Priscilla F. Shemp was attracted to his strong arms and quick smile. They were soon wed, and in 1886 Priscilla gave birth to a fine, strong son who they named Ralph after her father. The Romani blood that ran through Walter's veins and that of his three brothers and one sister was deep and made them very restless. The siblings known as the 5 Humble Humo-Adventurers, a name which would follow them the rest of their days, left New Jersey spreading out across America. Walter's small family settled in Lon Ridge, Illinois, Two years later, Priscilla gave birth again, but this one was more difficult, and the baby was born with a club foot. They named him Oscar. He would one day be my grandfather. Then along came a baby girl, Harriet, a boy, Albert, and one last boy, Charles, who changed his name to Carl. Walter again grew restless and looked west towards the promise of a new life in a new land. In eighteen eighty nine he stepped off the train in Nortonville, Kansas, and immediately felt at home. Though the town was young, there was something about it that made Walter feel that the promise of the new life in the new land he had sought was here. Walter was a skilled leather worker, and he had grown up helping his father make harnesses for mules and horses back home. His older brothers had never shown much interest in working with leather and animals, but for Walter, it is what he enjoyed. The smell of a stable and a freshly tooled piece of leather was like ambrosia to him. Asking around, he soon learned that the only tack to be had in this bustling village of Nortonville was only available at the blacksmith's shop and livery stable. Walter inspected their goods and found them to be of inferior quality. He knew that there was a niche to be filled, and he knew that he was the man to do it. Taking his life savings, he opened a tack and livery store and soon was doing a booming business. Soon word spread of the high-quality saddles, harnesses, reins, and yokes being turned out by the tall gypsy. It wasn't long before the commander of the local cavalry unit heard about Walter's craftsmanship, and soon Walter had the contract to make all attack for the local cavalry units. Walter's brother Lucius had moved to Nortonville and was helping Walter run his business. Walter needed to be closer to the supplies he needed to fulfill the cavalry contract, so he decided to expand his business. Since Lucius had just been elected mayor of Nortonville, Walter hired more help to take the burden off his brother with local business. Walter packed up his family and moved to Topeka and opened a new tack-and-harness shop where he could concentrate on the government contract. Hiring more help, Walter got to work making mule harnesses for the 7th Cavalry as well as servicing local private customers and local Topeka businesses. Soon, Walter had a thriving business. I heaved a sigh of relief as I crossed the Oklahoma border into Kansas. To put it mildly, both Texas and Oklahoma roads suck. Both states should take a highway building lesson from Kansas. However, my elation at finally being back within my home state and riding on decent roads again was to be short-lived. There were nasty-looking black, ominous storm clouds ahead, and I was heading straight towards them. As I skirted the edge of Wichita, Kansas, I watched the clouds overhead. A few drops of rain lightly pelted me as I accelerated along the turnpike. I calculated that based on the northeast direction that I was heading, if I maintained my present speed of 75 miles per hour, I should be able to outrun the black mass of clouds to the west. As I pulled into the service plaza at El Dorado, Kansas, I was pleased to see that my calculations had been correct. The storm was still too close for my comfort, but I was far enough ahead of it that some of my anxiety of getting caught in it was calmed. After a quick phone call to Debbie and an even quicker fueling, I was back on the road. As I rode those final miles towards Topeka, I thought of Walter and Priscilla Hummel and the life they had built for themselves and their family. Ralph would marry a lady named Buena Vista and become a successful businessman and developer. Harriet would become a civilian bookkeeper and work for the United States Navy during World War II. She would find herself to be the first woman ever stationed on Kodiak Island, monitoring a Lanta air radar station and keeping personnel records. Carl would become a singer with the Metropolitan Opera New York, New York, and eventually pass away from throat cancer. Albert would disappear from the family history, no one knowing his final resting place. As for my grandfather, he would become a dentist and landowner in Kansas City, Missouri, and one day would have the dubious honor of renting an old garage to a young artist and filmmaker named Walt Disney. I still marvel at the achievements of my family whenever I think about it. Oh, to have heard Carl sing or get business advice from Ralph. I once met a man who had one of Walter's mule harnesses hanging on his wall. They are marked with a joint WH. He refused to sell it to me because it looked nice holding his wife's flower arrangement. I never got to meet my grandfather, Oscar, because he died of a stroke and was laid to rest on Valentine's Day of 1956, eight months before I was born. Yet I did not only meet my great-aunt Harriet, but I loved her immensely, and she loved me back. Harriet Hummel Wickman was a big woman, a giant woman, standing at six foot four inches tall and weighing in around 300 pounds, she was a formidable force wherever she went. After World War II, she left Kodiak Station on Kodiak Island and married her Navy sweetheart. They settled in Topeka, and Harriet put the record-keeping skills she had learned in the service to good use by going to work for the insurance bureau at 7th and Jackson. When she wasn't there, she worked part-time in the bookkeeping department at Pelletier's department store. Harriet became a widow, and her health deteriorated. She kept working despite the protest of her daughter. By 1967, Harriet's eyesight and hearing were failing, and she could no longer work. That fall, Harriet was diagnosed with lymphoma. Her doctor wanted to remove her arm, but she refused, stating, I came into this world with two arms, and I will leave with two arms. If I don't have both my arms, I do not want to live. Her daughter did not like her mother's defiance and went to court to have her declared incompetent. Once she was made Harriet's guardian and trustee, she signed her mother into the hospital where Harriet's doctor removed her arm. Ten days out of surgery, Harriet was in convalescent center recovering. Around noon, a young nurse entered her room with her lunch tray. She had not been out of her bed since the surgery, yet as the nurse entered, Harriet swung herself to the edge of the bed, stood up, looked the nurse in the eye, and said, "Goodbye." Harriet Hummel-Whitman collapsed to the floor as she passed from this world to the next. As a child, I could often be found walking towards downtown along 7th Street from our home on Western. Aunt Harriet worked in the basement of the insurance bureau, and whenever she saw me walk by, she would open a window and invite me in for a Coke. Never a birthday, Christmas, or Easter passed that I did not have a greeting card from her with a $5 bill stuffed inside and a note that said, Enjoy. The year Aunt Harriet died, I had to go to summer school at Loman Hill, near where she lived, and after classes I would stop by and visit with her for a while. I enjoyed the visits, and so did she. Though at the time I was seeing her every day, she always said, Don't be a stranger when I would leave. Several years after Aunt Harriet had passed away, I was in Rochester Cemetery trying to locate her grave. I asked the sexton if she knew where the grave was located, and she laughed. Sure do, Harriet is right over here. I was amazed. I asked, with all the people buried here, how on earth could you remember them all and where they are buried? She said, oh, I don't remember them all, just the special ones. You see, your Aunt Harriet not only had one of the largest funerals this cemetery has ever seen, there was traffic blocked up on Rochester Road with people coming in for her service. She also had one of the largest caskets I have ever seen in all my years here. I laughed. Yep, Aunt Harriet was a very big woman in more ways than one. I'd left my home in Eula, Texas at 6 a.m. and arrived at Lake Shawnee Campground at 5.55 p.m. At 611 miles and almost 12 hours on the road, I was exhausted and sore. After pitching my tent and unloading my gear, I crawled into my sleeping bag for a well-deserved rest. Tomorrow was another day. And I had a long week ahead of me. Well, that's it for this episode of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow. Tune in next week when you find out that, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. This is a Gypsy saying blessings to you and yours. Later, Gators. Bye-bye now. Visit the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow on the web at www.rubberbiscuit.com. That's www.rubberbiskit.com. The Rubber Biscuit Roadshow is a copyrighted production of Tapman Productions LLC. All rights reserved. No parts of the show may be copied, or duplicated, or used without the express written permission of the artist. You can contact the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow at Rubber Biscuit Road Show at gmail.com.